everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm not going to be doing an interview. I'm going to be giving a bit of a monologue myself, because there is a couple of issues that I've been looking at now for several years, and a, a several articles that I recently saw uh, really highlighted these issues for me, and I want to discuss all of them with you today because I think that they are something every parent and every person in Canada, the United States, and elsewhere need to be thinking about really deeply. So those of you who have followed along with this column or this podcast or or have read LifeSite News regularly or really any sort of countercultural, counter-revolutionary media site that analyzes what the post-Christian West will look like, where we're headed as a civilization as we move farther away from Christian values as we see a lot of threats to religious liberty develop in different places, you guys will know that obviously we're in uncharted territory, that our civilization, which was once based on Judeo-Christian values and rooted fundamentally in the values of Judeo-Christian principles, has now shifted, and we are no longer rooted in values based on scriptural revelation. We are instead rooted in the values of the sexual revolution. And much of what we've seen happen over the last several decades, but especially the last decade and a half, uh, are explained by that transfer, this realignment both politically and legally and institutionally uh, towards a different set of values. And there was a, a magnificent book written in 2016 uh, by Mary Aberstadt called It's Dangerous to Believe, Religious Freedom and Its Enemies. And I've had her on this podcast several times to talk about several of her books. But she noted something in that book that stuck out to me at the time when I reviewed it. And she noted that most people in Orthodox Christian circles have, at some point, had a conversation about what they might do if their governments grow even more overtly hostile to Christian beliefs and practices. And I've been part of conversations like that now more times than I can count. I know many of you, the listeners, have had similar conversations. Uh, if you're somebody here in Canada, that might involve discussing whether or not you want to move to the United States, perhaps to a conservative jurisdiction that has more protections for religious liberty. If you're in a blue state in the United States, that might mean considering moving to a red state. I know a lot of people are joining exoduses from various blue states like California or Massachusetts or New York State and are instead heading to places like Ron DeSantis's Florida. And so all of those moves have been kind of premised on the idea that you want to go to a place where there's leadership that not only respects Christian values, but often will, is, will, are willing to defend those values. And that's been the discussion in Christian circles for quite a long time, is that as we see this realignment in the institutions and in, in government, that we want to ensure that our families and our communities are safe. And there's a lot of debate over what the best thing for Christian communities to do is. I think Rod Dreher has probably most famously contributed to that debate. He's the author of The Benedict Option, which advocates for a, a strategic withdrawal from public life. He followed that book up with his book Live Not By Lies, a, a dissident's manual. And he himself, interestingly enough, decamped to Hungary, which is where he lives and writes from at the moment. But I think that there's some distinct shifts that we've seen take place uh, over the last several years, especially since around 2010, that mean the dangers that we're facing are not dangers that any of us might have predicted. 
Uh, so a lot of the dangers that have been discussed and a lot of the dangers we see happening now have been predicted. Uh, for the longest time, we've seen Christian thinkers and commentators predict that we're going to see encroachments on religious liberty, uh, that we're going to see increasingly the LGBT movement become a totalitarian movement seeking to impose its will on people. And so to, to some extent, a lot of those things we see uh, have been predicted and thus were predictable. So when we see the state going after Christian bakers or Christian florists or Christian videographers, as we've seen in, in the United States and Canada and elsewhere, uh, those things are awful and people's lives have been ruined. But at the same time, we also are not shocked by those events because anybody who has been reading what the Christian commentators uh, and cultural thinkers have been predicting will have hopefully seen that coming. And there's different things that can be done. We've seen a lot of these cases actually uh, get good rulings at the Supreme Court in the United States, where support for religious liberty is still quite strong, stronger certainly than it is in Canada and a number of other Western jurisdictions. And so it's sort of a mixed bag. When you're looking at religious liberty, there are still places where religious liberty is very protected, and then there are places where religious liberty is very, very weak. But the dangers that we had talked about for the longest time uh, were dangers that, as Rod Dreher lays out in, in Live Not By Lies, of Christians becoming increasingly ostracized, of our views being frowned upon. Uh, here in Canada, according to recent polling released by Global News, only 31% of Canadians still believe that the good religion brings to society outweighs the bad. And that comes with, with real consequences. It comes with uh, a lot less government protection for Christian institutions. I've said before, and I said last week at a speech that I suspect here in Canada we'll see uh, tax-exempt status for churches and other religious institutions that refuse to kowtow to the dogmas of the day eventually lose that status. I think that eventually we'll see Christian schools targeted to a greater extent than we've already seen. I think that it's going to cost us a lot more, both financially and socially, uh, to be Christians in a post-Christian society where Christianity is increasingly viewed as a hateful and bigoted worldview uh, and often simply as an excuse to dislike LGBT people, for example. And so these things, again, I think are, are, are predicted and predictable. But I think, again, the mainstream culture has become in many ways more tangibly dangerous in ways that are more difficult to predict. And a key way that this is the case is the complete colonization of our collective institutions by the transgender movement. Now, transgenderism is something that many scholars did see coming. It was advocated by many of the sexual revolutionaries going back decades. So in some ways, the idea that transgenderism would be the natural outflowing of the LGB movement is something that was predicted by many Christian thinkers. But what has been shocking to most observers is the extent to which transgenderism has become the institutional ideology of virtually every elite institution, whether that be medicine, academia, in Canada by virtually every major political party, in the United States by one of the two most powerful parties, including the one that currently holds the presidency, and that this ideology would be applied almost immediately to children. When I say that there's been a complete colonization, I mean virtually every major children's hospital or hospital full stop 
has adopted the tenets of gender ideology and uses those tenets when they're approaching children suffering from gender dysphoria. We've had other long podcasts discussing how gender dysphoria has become a peer contagion and how the rates of children identifying as the opposite gender have spiked by over 5,000%. We talked about this with uh, Abigail Schreier, the author of the book, uh, The... Um, Irreversible damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters. So I don't need to go into all the details of that here. Those of you who are interested in exploring those details can take a look back at those podcasts. But the extent to which institutions began to stand between parents and their children on these specific issues has been very, very staggering. I've many parents have reached out to me uh, through through my blog, uh, through this column, to describe the helplessness they experience when their children are first introduced to gender ideology at school or online, and then those children decide to take irreversible cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, or even undergo sex change surgeries, and that when this happens, there's essentially nothing thing that they can do to stop it. And I want to pause here for a moment, uh, pause, pardon me, just to take a look at what these parents really are enduring. Uh, there's a, a documentary that I reviewed recently called Dead Name, um, put out by a filmmaker who wanted to just explore the stories of parents whose children decide to transition against the will of the parents. A dead name, for those of you who don't know, is what trans activists use to refer to the given name at birth. Uh, this is a name that usually the child rejects when they decide to transition to a different gender. So to use a, a couple of well-known examples, uh, to call Bruce Jenner Bruce instead of Caitlin or Ellen Page Ellen instead of Elliot would be to use their dead name. And trans activists claim that this is fundamentally a form of violence. And dead name shows parents recounting the loss of their children, and they're just helpless with horror as they tell their stories. There's a four-year-old socially transitioned at daycare without the parents being told. Uh, children encountering gender ideology from wildly popular social media influencers who persuade them that their feelings of awkwardness or lack of belonging can be solved by these drugs or these surgeries. Uh, children going to Planned Parenthood, which is now one of America's biggest purveyor of these drugs, and getting hormones again without parental knowledge or permission. And when these parents try to speak out and warn their children of the possible consequences, they're demonized by almost everyone as unsafe and unsupportive. And children are advised by peers and professionals to simply cut their parents out. They're told to instead only to communicate with those who support them. Uh, the colloquial transgender term for this is just to talk to your glitter family, your new family. And most of these parents aren't even opposed to gender ideology per se. They simply want to talk to their children to discuss the irreversible implications of these treatments. And one of the heartbreaking aspects of this is that many of these parents thought therapists would be their allies at first and that educators would want the discussion. They wanted to discuss what was best for their child. But as they found when they began to seek people out to discuss what was going on with their son or daughter, institution after institution turned against them. They were told they were abusive, that they were contributing to the demise of their children. Even their children, one in the film as young as four, announced that they wanted to begin carving up their bodies and changing their very physiology. 
And the sense of betrayal, of, of being gaslit, that these parents experience is acute. It's acute. The, the film Dead Name is the story of their like desperate scrabble uh, to keep their kids while the cultural currents suck them away. And many of these parents feel as if they are trapped in a nightmare from which they cannot wake up, in which they are screaming, but everyone who hears them mocks them or tells them it's their fault. The dead name could actually be called Invasion of the Body Snatchers because that's how most parents feel. One mom said, this is a crime against humanity, cutting off body parts, and you could sense her anguish as she said it. One mother talks about her daughter's beautiful voice slowly disappearing as she takes drugs her parents are helpless to prevent. And as journalist Brandon Showalter notes during the film, and we've had him on this podcast as well, these parents are watching the slow-motion disassociation and disintegration at times, literally and chemically, of their children. To talk about these tragedies, parents are now having to connect through underground networks, often, ironically, using false names, to talk about what is being done to their children, where nobody can report them as dangerous. And so, this is something that parents are experiencing on a day-to-day basis across the United States and Canada. Uh, Some parents are legally barred from seeing their children or have their children removed from their home because they're insufficiently affirming of their child's new transgender identity. I've had one such father on this show, and his experience is just devastating to listen to. And so I really wanted to talk about this threat, this threat which was not predicted, this threat of of parents actually watching their children slowly be sucked away from them by these cultural currents that we did not predict 10 years ago, that we didn't know would be as strong as it was when we didn't recognize that social media was going to be the gasoline on this fire and that the entire education system would rally behind precepts, concepts, an ideology that was considered extraordinarily radical just a little while ago. And so I want to read to you a a blog post that I recently saw that highlights exactly how brutal this actually is. There's a Substack newsletter called Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans, and they regularly post usually anonymous stories about parents who are struggling to figure out how to help their children, how to even keep their children when their children have been sucked into the transgender cult. And on February 28, there was one post just titled Eastern European Mom. That was the title. And I think that her story is worth sharing because it really emphasizes the tangible, physical, mental danger that mainstream culture and most of our institutions now pose to children. So I'm going to read a part of this blog post out verbatim now. Quote, when she was 13, my daughter had a mental meltdown. This came after a few years of cutting anxiety and depression. She was hospitalized, and while in the hospital, she announced she was a boy. I am a single mom in the U.S., an immigrant from Eastern Europe with two children, my daughter and a younger son. My very large family still resides in Eastern Europe. I subsequently learned that my daughter's public middle school had socially transitioned her behind my back. Socially transitioned, for those of you who don't know, means using a different name and often helping them address and present as the opposite gender. Alarmed at this plot to take my child away, I immediately made plans to return to Eastern Europe. I located a school back home near my family for both of my children. I contacted the school director, explained the situation, and was assured that they would not affirm and that they would work with me no matter what struggles my daughter has. So I sent both kids to Eastern Europe to stay with my family while I followed a few weeks later after making arrangements to work remotely. 
When I returned to Eastern Europe, I opened up to my very large family about what had happened with my daughter. As opposed to many of the stories I've heard with U.S. families, where family members are quick to affirm, regardless of what the parents see as being in the child's best interest, my family was shocked. They asked how they could jump in to help my daughter's distress and mental health struggles. They were also appalled by the gender ideology and their interference in family affairs. Rightfully so, they were shocked that the school in the U.S. could assume such a major responsibility for someone's child's future and health. My daughter never disclosed her trans identity to the family our whole time in Eastern Europe. As a family, we supported my daughter by lavishing her with attention and praise, especially for her beauty. Eastern Europeans are not ones to gush, so this was not natural, but we all praised all the time, and we did it again and again and again. Every day we would start with a simple statement, you're such a beautiful girl. We praised her general beauty. We praised her nose, her chin, her eyes, her smile, her hair, her neck. We also implemented a whole schedule to make sure she was never alone and without family. We organized endless family dinners, gatherings, and celebrations. At every gathering, one of us would say, you're such a beautiful girl. And she obviously is. My daughter is perfect in every single possible way. My daughter is a wonder. I was struck repeatedly and still nearly cry when I paused to think about the doctors who were ready to swoop in and mutilate my beautiful daughter. I still have nightmares of her walking up to me as an adult with her breasts cut off, with, uh, with deep wounds in her arms, with hair on her pretty delicate face, asking why I allowed the doctors to mutilate her. I told my ex-husband, my daughter's father, about the trip to Eastern Europe and the reason, thinking that he too would support the intervention. He did not. Instead, he threatened to take her to the U.S. with him and his new family so that she could transition. At this point, the intervention seemed to be having an effect. My daughter rejected his invitation and stayed with me. But I told my daughter at this time that if she wanted to return to the U.S., we could do so, and that I would bring over as much of our family with us as I could. She didn't want to stay in Eastern Europe, so as promised, we returned to the U.S. right in time for the new school year. My daughter has been earning abysmal grades in her large, or had been, pardon me, earning abysmal grades in her large public school. One condition for the return was that she would go to a smaller private school, any school of her choice we could afford. My daughter picked the smallest, a Catholic school. I spoke freely and very directly to her principal about our stories and fears. He assured me that they didn't focus on gender ideology at the school. However, if my daughter came out and asked to be called he, the school and teachers, this is California, would have to comply. But the principal said that they would not keep it a secret from me. He also said that they would stay neutral about the trans identity. They would neither celebrate nor condemn. I thought this was more than a fair offer and enrolled her. After a few months back in the States in her new school, my daughter announced, now aged 14, that she liked herself as a girl and that she believes she is very pretty. I was so happy, but I tried to play it cool and said that it made me so happy to know that she accepted her healthy body the way that it is. And a healthy body, body is never wrong. It is a treasure. We now talk more freely about gender ideology. She now trusts me more when I say that there is no way to be happy when you reject your body. We are our bodies. All of my daughter's friends are letters from the LGBTQT soup. Lately, she started speaking up about how this whole movement seems to be just a narcissistic, attention-seeking ploy. However, she is still sympathetic to the cause. Unlike me, I will never forgive this ideology for what they do to children's brains and to families. My younger son adores his sister and was horrified and scared when she was confused and ill. In my daughter's dark hours, when she was screaming at us that she was a boy and that she hated us, he would cry. He would ask, he would ask me, who changed his sister? What happened to her? He was only seven at the time. I yet have to see what, if any, long-term effects all this had on my son. My son is still young, and I work hard to inoculate him. No one can be assumed safe. My son still goes to a public school in the same district that transitioned my daughter. 
I trained my son to talk to me if anyone at school or outside the family discusses religion, sex, health, family, or political beliefs with him. I told him that these are very dangerous subjects that can be used against our family. This is what my parents taught me when I was growing up in Eastern Europe. They were scientists and anti-communists. We children were not allowed to speak to strangers or teachers about these topics because, if our family was deemed to have problematic beliefs, my parents could be taken away by the KGB. I told my, my son that the same thing could happen here. If he said the wrong thing about gender ideology, CPS could determine that I'm a bad mom and take him and his sister away. This has happened to several families where I live. I consider myself very lucky. Despite the whole ordeal, I am grateful to the hospital that made me realize the double life my daughter was leading, which, in retrospect, I believe was the main factor contributing to her depression and cutting. I am grateful to my family that supported and stood by me during the lowest time in my life. I am even grateful to my ex-husband, who, while wanting to wedge himself between me and my daughter, only made our relationship stronger. But I am not ready to lower my guard. I am baffled at this ideology that proudly and openly medicalizes, mutilates, and castrates children and all the useful idiots that enable it to do so. What is their endgame? A brave new world with cohorts of sick and sterile adults? Generations of young girls that are menopausal at 20 or boys that are eunuchs at 18? If you're a doctor that supports this, are you incredibly stupid or incredibly evil? I've heard a lot of stories just like this one. This is me reading. This is me me speaking again. I've heard a lot of stories just like this one, and I've heard it from the very people who went through them. But what struck me about this story is that in this story, too, you have somebody fleeing the West, fleeing the United States, and fleeing back to Eastern Europe, which once languished behind the Iron Curtain and was once governed by Marxist ideology. When this mother wanted to save her daughter, she actually had to leave the country, and she had to leave the country because she didn't know what would happen if she stayed, or, more accurately, she did know what would happen. She knew that the teachers and the principals would side against her, that if her and her daughter fought about transitioning, that she could be reported to the authorities and that her daughter could be taken away. And this is not some bizarre paranoid fantasy. The nightmare scenario she had of her daughter coming up to her, mutilated and broken, is currently the lived experience of tens of thousands of family across the West, and likely far more than that. These stories are unfolding every day, because these ideologies are not simply absurd abstractions pushed out by recently invented university departments. They are the guiding principles of the very institutions we once assumed had the best interests of our children at heart. This mother, again, I repeat, had to flee the United States, not because she couldn't go to church, not because any beliefs she had were frowned upon, but to literally save her daughter's physical and emotional health. I think the real-life scenarios that we see playing out across the West are now far more terrifying than those that great Christian thinkers like Mary Aberstadt and Rod Dreher and others have been warning us about for a long time. And all of those threats, of course, are still in play. Uh, what we see right now is our society transforming at multiple levels. We see those threats to religious liberty. Everything Aberstadt and Dreher and so many others have written is absolutely true, and many of those things are still coming to pass. But what we see right now with the sheer poison that's in the cultural groundwater is far, far worse because it's not taking persecution as a collective Christian community and standing on truth. It's being targeted for your children and in a way that would objectively destroy them. I would far rather face marginalization, ostracization, or even worse for my beliefs than see the minds and bodies of my children ruined with the backing of institutional and state power 
by this destructive ideology and their colleagues, or shall I say collaborators, in the various institutions. And we're completely trapped in many ways when it comes to this institution. And many parents who send their children, entrust their children to the public school system or even to the medical system, assume that those people want what's best for their child. When in reality, the version of affirmation that those institutions push is profoundly Orwellian. It's the opposite of what the word means, because if you'll recall what this mother said about what her large extended family in Eastern Europe did, that there was constant affirmation over and over and over again, that she was beautiful in every way, that is what real affirmation looks like. But every term has been twisted. And so gender affirmation surgery is what they call sex change surgery. And that affirmation involves something profoundly different than the affirmation that healed this woman's daughter, at least uh, as far as we know and up until this point. And so this threat is a threat that I think parents have to be on guard with. You don't need to have people pounding on the doors of your church or telling your pastor what he can and cannot say or having people informing our schools that they have to shut their doors for your child to be at profound danger from this culture because this culture is no longer just ungodly. It's no longer just neutral on Christian values. It's no longer just oppositional. It's filled with the sort of seductive poison that is currently resulting in the physical and mental destruction of tens and tens of thousands of children. The number might be higher than that because we're seeing the rates of children identifying as different genders going up by thousands of percent. I don't have the full details, and none of us do, on what's going to happen in Canada, but I want to give another example of the ways in which the radical autonomy that's being legislated at every level in our societies can have an effect on our individual families and communities in a way that doesn't necessarily constitute persecution for our beliefs, but is still a direct result of these new values and is, in my view, far more terrifying again and even far more dangerous. And in Canada, I look to the legalization of assisted suicide and the expansion of the assisted suicide regime under the Trudeau government. So those of you, again, who, who read, read my column at LifeSite or at thebridgehead.ca or listen to this podcast will know some of the horror stories that we've seen uh, over the past couple of years coming out of Canada's uh, euthanasia regime. Canada's becoming, in many ways, an international cautionary tale. And, in fact, the interview that I did on this show last week was an interview with a man who is currently applying for assisted suicide in Canada because his disability uh, does not allow him to live a life that's affordable. He doesn't want to die, but at the same time, he says he can't afford to live. But one of the things that has not been discussed enough, in my view, is the what the implications for suicide for the mentally ill will eventually result in. And so we see that the, the Trudeau government has just delayed expanding eligibility for assisted suicide to those suffering only from mental illness for a year. And of course, the reasonable thing to do after hearing all the parliamentary uh, all the parliamentary testimonies from the disability experts, from mental health experts, the condemnation of that policy by the Association for Suicide Prevention here in Canada would be for them to cancel this expansion entirely. And in fact, no less than the United Nations of all groups has actually warned that some of Canada's euthanasia policies could be a fundamental violation of human rights, which is, of course, what some of us have been saying since the inauguration of this regime more than half a decade ago now. But there's a, a, a specific part 
of that new regime, I think, that will have consequences that will make the horror stories that we're currently seeing look pale in comparison. And let me explain what I mean by that. So Justice Minister David Lametti has made it very clear that they are still absolutely planning to institute MAID, is what they're calling it, medical aid in dying, but more accurately, assisted suicide or euthanasia, uh, for those with mental illness. That this is not something that's going to be cancelled, that this is something that they're delaying. And as such, if if the Trudeau government is still in power at the t- in, in a year from now, which is not at all unlikely, uh, what we're likely to see is mental illness being provided to those who suffer only from mental illness. Now, our mental health care system is broken. Uh, the ability of people to procure assistance for these things is fundamentally broken. And so we're going to see the the trickle of horror stories that are coming out in Canadian newspapers and the international press almost weekly now turn into a torrent and then into a tidal wave as people who cannot access any help for mental illness now can actually get put to sleep like household pets by medical professionals. But what's also important to recognize here is that the parliament, one parliamentary advisory board has advised, has advised that assisted suicide also be offered to what they call mature minors, mature minors. And this is something that I don't think people fully realize, um, is that if this is what happens a year from now, and I think that at this point in time it's likely, children suffering from depression, minors, will be able to request assisted suicide and will be able to access that air quote right against the will of their parents. We have the journalist Alexander Rakin who has spent a couple of years researching the subject. Uh, he posted a, a missive from December 22, 2022 from the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. And this is what it says. At the, at the last paragraph, which most people didn't notice in the report from the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers, said most jurisdictions in Canada also have provincial or territorial legislation that prevent violence and harassment in the workplace. This additional legislation helps ensure that healthcare professionals can offer healthcare free of bullying. Clinicians who provide maid in a variety of environments, including private homes and facilities, will, of course, be protected from this. And Alexander points out, it's not an idle threat. Made providers, if they deem your child eligible, will have every legal right to break into your home and, quote, provide maid, regardless of what you think about it. This isn't hyperbole. So now consider the impact of the legislation that could come into effect less than a year from now. If they deem a mature minor eligible for assisted suicide against the will of parents, parents who have a child struggling with depression for any number of reasons and we're in the middle of a mental health crisis at the moment, those children, regardless of what the parents think, will have every right to have a medical professional, an executioner essentially, enter the parental home while the parents stand by helplessly, restrained by law enforcement if that's what's necessary, and receive a lethal injection in their bedroom. For those of you who think this sounds hyperbolic, I urge you to look up what the maid assessors have said. I urge you to look up the parliamentary report that actually advocates for this. Uh, If you think that this sounds sort of out of this world, consider the fact that a Quebec medical body advocated for involuntary euthanasia for severely disabled infants under the age of one. This is not a very carefully guarded regime. This is a four-lane highway. There is no guardrails. The slippery slope is slick with blood, and at the bottom piles up corpse after corpse, and we hear new stories again every week. And consider for a moment what a society that now worships radical autonomy and implements it in law will do. 
and the way in which the law and the state and all of the relevant institutions can stand in between parents and children. If your child decides to identify as a different sex, would like to block puberty or take cross-sex hormones, and would like to have their breasts or their penis and genitals surgically removed, despite what could happen, despite all of the evidence we have about the irreversible damage done, despite the fact that young people who do this are likely to experience permanent infertility and in many cases will never ever be able to achieve any sexual pleasure at all and they're making these decisions before they're old enough to smoke, drink, drive or vote. The institutions and the government stands in between parents and children who are deciding to do this. The children are groomed by the institutions, groomed by the mainstream culture, and then can access this while the parents are legally held back. And we're going to see the same thing, if nothing changes, with medical aid and dying. We're going to see the state and many institutions pose an active danger, an active danger to the lives of children suffering from mental illness. I know many people with mental illness. Many of them are some of my nearest and dearest. And I cannot express how much this particular piece of legislation terrifies me. We have rightly focused on the persecution that Christian communities could face. We've rightly focused on the dangers that are endemic to a post-Christian age. I think it's very important for us to notice other threats that are corollary to the sorts of laws that we've, we've looked at, but again could result in real physical, mental, and even lethal harm done to children. I don't understand why so many Canadians seem so disengaged from an issue that will affect every single person. This issue of assisted suicide, the issue of mental illness, the issue of suicidal ideation, especially among minors, is not one, obviously, that just impacts Christian families or religious families or families who simply oppose suicide for other ethical reasons. These are things that affect literally everybody. These are things that affect every home. And these are things that are going to result in horror stories that will make the ones that we have seen thus far uh, pale in comparison. And again, I urge you, if, if, if people think that I sound hyperbolic, uh, if people think that I'm misrepresenting the evidence, please do look at what Dying With Dignity, the major lobby group pushing all these things, says go to their website, read what they advocate, read what they're calling for, read what their definition of mature minor is. The government has essentially been taking its marching orders from this organization from the get-go. The government has ignored disability groups, it's ignored suicide prevention groups, it's ignored parental stakeholders, it's ignored pretty much everybody who has been screaming bloody murder literally. It's ignored relatives who have testified before Parliament and also been interviewed by the CBC explaining that their relatives went into the hospital for help and were offered euthanasia. We've already had an instance where a man was brought to the hospital for mental health care by his family and he was euthanized. And what the family bluntly said is the hospital killed my son. Now imagine this happening to teenagers. Think about for a moment, the teenagers in your life, and picture in your head as I'm speaking the one or ones more likely who have struggled with mental illness. Try to picture in your, in your head for a moment uh, a loved one you know who has struggled with suicidal ideation. And now imagine that that person could go to a medical professional in Canada and access suicide as a right. That if you called the hospital to stop them, as I've done before, I have called the hospital to stop people from committing suicide before. Now imagine they could get picked up and instead of being prevented, uh, they would be assisted. That is the system that we already live in and that is a system that is about to get far, far worse. 
And so instead of doing an interview, I'll be doing several more interviews on, on similar subjects in the coming months because I think that we need to carefully think through together what this looks like and, and do our best to protect our families and to protect our communities from this. But I think we need to consciously think about the real dangers that the mainstream culture poses, not just because it's post-Christian and anti-Christian, not just in the ways that religious liberty is likely to be encroached upon or life is likely to get harder uh, for our Christian communities. But we should recognize that the digital world our children participate in um, is, is inculcating ideologies in them that they can pursue to the extent of physically mutilating their own bodies, resulting in their own mental destruction, and that there will be nothing that we can do about it if those children decide to go to a doctor, decide to go to an, a quote-unquote affirming therapist, decide to speak to essentially anybody but their parents, because the government is against us, the courts are against us, the medical institutions are against us. And the same thing, I think, is very soon going to apply uh, to assisted suicide. So this is something I urge everybody to think about very carefully. And again, for those who do think that what I'm saying uh, stretches the, the bonds of credulity, do please look into it yourself. Because although I think that there have been many Christian thinkers who have been very clear-eyed and far-sighted about what Christian communities will face in the future, I think we underestimated the extent to which the culture we inhabit is has become fundamentally poisonous and that ideologies that were only recently considered ridiculous are now currently destroying the lives of many, many people. Many of those people are children. Many of my listeners are parents. And so I just wanted to share some of my concerns that I've been researching over the last couple of years with all of you. With that, if you'd like to keep up to date with the things that we talk about on this podcast, uh, please do head over to lifesightnews.com. You can click on the podcast tab. You can listen to past shows or subscribe to hear future shows there. I have a, a column several times a week at Lifesight News. I also write at thebridgehead.ca. Uh, for those of you who recognize that what I'm saying um, is not prescient at all, but is just an accurate analysis of the facts, uh, do recognize that that there are many of us trying to think through these things and that in that sense, at least, uh, we're in this together. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll listen again next week.